few years ago I stayed with a friend of mine who is, uh, was vicar of a small parish in the Bronx in New York. Uh, he spent quite a bit of time showing me the Bronx. He wanted me to know that the Bronx was a vast area, not just the poor area, and that some of the wealthiest people in New York lived in the Bronx, as well as some of the poorest. And he was, his parish was in one of the kind of lower uh, middle class areas. Masood is an interesting guy. You can tell that from his name. When he grew up, every Sunday morning he went to church with his mother. She was a Pentecostal Christian and he would spend the morning in worship and then in Sunday school. And then, just before 12, his father would come and pick him up. Did I mention that Masood was an African-American? Well, when Masood's father was growing up, he grew up in the South. And his experience of Christianity was of hatred and bigotry and lynching. There was nothing in the way that white Christians treated blacks that would allow him to see any love or hope. And the God of the Christians was not a God that he was even remotely interested in. And so he converted to Islam, as many African Americans have done. In Islam, he found that hope and that peace and that love that he was looking for. So, every Sunday, Masood went to midday prayers. You couldn't have midday prayers on Friday because, well, America was a Christian country and you only had Sundays off. So they had their holy day on Sundays, like the Christians. And then he would spend the afternoon at Muslim school, learning to be a Muslim. He lived in these two worlds until he was a teenager, and then he decided that he would be a Christian. And now he's an Anglican priest working back in New York. Well, the Friday that I was there was the first Friday of Ramadan. And he said to me, he still occasionally goes to the mosque, and he has friends who are Muslims. He said, would you like to go to the mosque for Friday prayers, the big mosque in the middle of Manhattan? Well, I was a little nervous about that, but off I went to Friday prayers, along with 2,000 other men and probably a similar number of women. It was an amazing experience to be in that place with all of those people devoutly praying. At the end of the prayers, the leader of the mosque then gave a good old-fashioned evangelical sermon. He talked about what Ramadan was about. Ramadan is... A period of time, I think it's 40 days, where all Muslims are to observe three of the five pillars of Islam. They are to fast, they are to pray, and they are to give arms. The other two pillars are faith. They are, a Muslim is by definition somebody who submits their will to the will of God. And the fifth is to go on pilgrimage at least once in their life if they are able to go on the harsh to the harsh. So Ramadan is about those first three, although they're not first three in the real order. And uh, so the preacher talked about those three pillars, and he said, just because you come to prayers on Friday during Ramadan, and just because you give alms, and just because you fast, does not make you a good Muslim. Being a good Muslim is when we use these things 
to pay attention to our relationship with God. That's probably God calling now. <laughs> now that sermon stuck, which is a bit of a miracle because I can hardly remember a single sermon that I've listened to and not that many that I've preached. And so the fact that this sermon in New York, preached by a Muslim, has stuck, is a remarkable thing. I think in part because it was in such a different environment. But I was also struck about how what that Muslim said about Ramadan applies to us in Lent. That sometimes we think that if we do these Lenten practices, that will make us a good Christian when we do them for their own sake and forget that actually these Lenten practices are about our re-evaluating our life in God. The same message holds true for us. And now for something completely different. I'd like you to turn to your neighbour and I want you to ask your neighbours three times who are you and to listen to their answers. Okay? Okay? And they should be three different answers. did you come up with? I am a child of God. Well done. Yes. Christians? Oh yeah, this is the first one. What about the other two? That's all you got. What are more questions there? What about the other answers to the questions? What kind of answers did you come up with? Right. That's good. We are in relationship to others, so daughters and mothers and wives. Right. So if I was to answer that question, most of my answers would be about how I'm a husband and a son and a brother and a friend. Our identity is most of the time built on our relationship with other people. That's how we define ourselves. That's how we understand ourselves. And that's a clue that our ultimate identity is in relation to God as the first holy answers gave us. But if we go beyond that, then we start defining ourselves by our relationship to other people. Now that's a clue when we come to our readings today. 
All of those readings we heard are about our relationship with God. And because our deepest, our deepest identity is found in that relationship. If we apply that to the Genesis reading, for example, we, if we asked Adam and Eve who they were, they might describe themselves as husband or wife, but you would hope they would also describe themselves as created by God, created in God's image. And they might also describe themselves as invited to live in God's place. Now we usually think of the Garden of Eden as a place an ideal place created for humans. But one or two of the commentators I read said, if you read that description of the Garden of Eden and then compare that with the descriptions of the homes of gods in just about every other religious tradition, what you have here is not a place created for humans, but the home of God. This place is where the heavenly ones dwell. This is God's home and all those who live with God. And Adam and Eve, this is not their place. This is God's place. And they are invited guests. The temptation that happens in this story is that the serpent tempts them to forget that. Tempts them to forget that they are created by God in God's image and that they are invited by God to live in God's dwelling place. The serpent says to them, you lack something. And the way to fill, to fill that lack is if you do something. You lack something, and the way to meet that lack is if you do something. God is pushed out of the picture. And Adam and Eve are placed at the centre of the picture. And it becomes all about them. It tempts them to forget who they really are, with terrible consequences. When they forget who they truly are, it breaks their relationship with God it breaks their relationship with themselves, with each other, and with all of creation. Because they forgot who they truly were. Now it would be, and it is easy, to read that story as if it was set long ago. As if that story is about when the fall happened, when sin entered the world, when we forgot who we were. But it's actually much more a story of how. How we are tempted to forget who we are. You and I, every day, if we bother to listen to all the ads, are told that we lack something. Amongst the list of things that I am told every day that I lack, or my faults, are that I am bald, hairy, overweight, old-looking, unfit, lacking energy, and just generally not cool enough. And then, if I buy this product or join this organisation, I will be fulfilled. I will have more hair or less hair. 
depending on which part of my body you're looking at, I'll be less overweight, less old looking, less unfit, and more energetic, and generally just cooler. <laughs> and all of that has exactly the same effect it had on Adam and Eve. Because it says, you are not created in the image of God. And actually, God has nothing to do with this. This is about you lacking something, and if you do something about it, then you will be fulfilled. Each one of those ads tempts us to forget who we truly are. Jesus was offered exactly the same invitation in the wilderness, in his time wrestling with the devil. This is a time for Jesus of wrestling with his identity in God. If we were to read all of Matthew, we would have just heard his baptism story, where he is declared to be the beloved Son of God. And then he is taken by the Spirit into the wilderness, a place where he has to let go of his self-reliance and his own talents and gifts. He has to trust in God in this place, and who he is in God. And there he is met by the tester. Now, in this part of Matthew, the devil really isn't that evil. This is more the devil of the book of Job. The devil in the book of Job isn't an evil being. The devil in the book of Job is a servant of God who does an, a very important job for God. He tests people to test their loyalty. It's thought that the term Satan actually comes from a Persian, a secret Persian official whose job it was to test Persians' loyalty to their emperor. And so, for, for most, for right up until the time of Jesus, the devil wasn't bad, unless, of course, you failed the test and then it was all bad. And certainly in this passage, it's used in that way. Later on, in the book of Matthew, Satan is, the devil is portrayed as an evil entity. There's also some debate about whether the ifs that are in the story should be translated as if or since, which sounds a little pedantic. But there's, there's a kind of question around whether the devil accepts that Jesus is the Son of God and that the real question here is, since you are the Son of God, what are you going to do with that? How are you going to live that out? And that really is the question that the serpent offered Adam and Eve. Well, since you are created in the image of God, what are you going to do with that? Are you wise enough? No. Well, if you ate this fruit, you'll be like God and you truly will be created in the image of God. And so there's this testing going on. Since you are the Son of God, what are you going to do with that? How are you going to live it? And each of those temptations that are placed before Jesus invites him to forget who he truly is and to push God to one side and to deal with the situation himself. You must be pretty hungry. Since you're the Son of God, change 
the stones into bread, and then you won't be hungry anymore. It's about Jesus taking control, doing it for his own sake, pushing God off to one side. But unlike Adam and Eve, and unlike us, Jesus does not forget who he is, and he trusts. And he says, well, I'd rather be desperately hungry, unknown, with no fame, power, or achievements. Because to be the Son of God is to trust God, absolutely, in everything, right up to the cross. To be the Son of God means trusting God and knowing that everything might not be okay in the end. So I wonder at what point do we reach our limit, no longer willing to trust, expecting more, thinking that we need to take control of the situation, just like Adam and Eve. And I wonder what price we pay. Most of the time, we don't even hear the invitation to forget who we truly are. Because most of the time, all the messages we hear tell us that we are in control of our lives. That we are the centre. That it's all about me. And so we don't notice. We don't notice that we're told that all we need to do is this or that. It's the norm. There's too much noise. And we're too busy. That's the point of Lent. Lent is a time to stop, to not be so busy, and to get rid of some of that noise, to pay attention to it, to notice all the voices that are telling us that it's all about me and I'm in control, and to put them to one side. Lent is, as that leader of the mosque says, a time to reevaluate who we are in God to remember who we truly are and that our identity in the end is only found in God and not in being less hairy or more hairy or more fit or whatever. Lent is a time to follow Jesus into the wilderness and to remember. Over the last 2,000 years, Christians have built on the spiritual practices of those who have gone before them and have developed new practices that allow us to pay attention. These practices invite us to offer less, to focus less and less on ourselves and on our own needs and want, and to focus more and more on God, who God created us to be. The God who created us, the God in whom we are made, in whose image we are made. And we are invited, and the God who invites us to live in God's world and to see God at work in that world. And as we do so, we are given ways to remember who we are, and through that we are led to love, to love God, to love ourselves, and to love the God we live in, to love the world we live in. Over the next few weeks I'm going to introduce some of these practices and there'll be a time after morning tea for those who want to to discuss more, to, to spend some time discussing each of these. There's a list of these in the Pewship, I hope, and they'll be in the parish web in the next, um, that will come out next Sunday. 
The temptation, though, with these spiritual practices is to think that if I do these practices, I will put myself somewhere where God can do some work in me. It's not a lot different from Adam and Eve, really. If I just do this, this will happen. If I just do these practices, this will happen. The trouble with that, and you'll read it in some books about spiritual practices, is that it puts us back in control. It puts us back in the centre. The reality is God is already at work in us, whether we want God to be doing that work or not. And the point of the spiritual practices is not so that God can do some work in us, which puts us in control, but so that we can pay attention to that work and cooperate with that work. God is the initiator. God is the one who does the work. We are invited to pay attention and to cooperate with that work. That is the point of the spiritual practices, especially those during Lent. The two practices we're looking at today, and I'm not going to talk very long about these, you'll be pleased to know, are solitude and silence and fasting. So we should probably have more silence at this point and I should fast from preaching sermons. As we just heard, Jesus began, um, but we're not going to. Uh, just, we've just heard that Jesus actually began his ministry with a huge dog, solitude and silence and fasting. Probably more fasting than you and I could possibly tolerate. Maybe a bit more solitude and silence than we could tolerate as well. And the interesting thing about that is that he lived in a world with a lot less noise than ours. And still he felt the need to do that. A few years ago I was down in Dunedin for a block course for one of the papers I was doing. And I was walking up to Knox College and all the students who were coming from the halls of residence and the flats from the northern end of Dunedin all were walking on their own with their iPods on and their little earphones in. And I remember blogging at the time about when do they ever have time with their own thoughts. They spend the whole day listening to someone else listening to someone else's thoughts and the music. Then they go to lectures, where lecturers fill up their minds with their thoughts, and then they spend time with their friends and listening to their thoughts. When do they just stop and spend time with their own thoughts? When do they have silence? Well, that's just as true of older people as well. When I go and visit my mother... The first thing she does when she comes down in the morning is turn on the radio in the kitchen. And the second thing she does is turn on the television onto exactly the same radio station that's playing in the kitchen. And those two sources of noise will play all day. The radio in the kitchen is the very last thing she turns off before she goes to bed. And she only turns off the television in the lounge if she's playing music or watching a television program. There is always noise in her house. And I understand why she does that. She lives on her own and it fills up a lot of empty space. But there's a lot of noise in her house. When do we have silence? And if I look at my own life, 
There's always noise around. When do we have time to just stop and be? Silence and solitude and fasting are about making time to stop and listen. It's about making time to pay attention to all the voices that fill our days and being deliberate about which voices we should listen to and which we should not listen to. And most important, it's about making space to hear the voice of God. So how do you make space to listen? Richard Foster, in the Celebration of Discipline, mentions five possible steps into silence and solitude. So I offer these as a conclusion to my sermon. Take advantage of the little solitudes that fill your day. That's the first one. The second one is to develop a quiet place designed for silence and solitude. A space somewhere in your house or in the garden where the only time you go there is for silence and solitude. To be still. The third is to discipline yourself so that words are full and few. The fourth is to try to live one entire day without words. That's a bit of a challenge. I'm not entirely sure I could do that. Be a good challenge. And the fifth one is four times a year to withdraw for three or four hours for the purpose of reorienting your life goals. To be still and quiet for three or four hours and to just pay attention to God. So I invite you to spend a moment thinking about what has struck you in what I've said this morning. Might be a good thing, might be a bad thing. And what questions you have and what you'd like to discuss more out of what I've said. We'll spend a moment doing that.